Cool, man. Well, welcome back to another working session. Looking forward to getting an update from you. I know we we took a week off for the Thanksgiving holiday there. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving with the with the family. And yeah, I think I got an icebreaker here. But before we get into that, uh, any updates, personal, professional on your end that you wanted to kick off with? Nah, man. Thanksgiving was good. It was busy bouncing around Colorado, but got to spend some family time, got some time in the mountains, got some friend time, got some more family time. So I was ready to get back to my desk on Monday, but I had some good stuff happen in the business over the break, actually. A couple of new like subscribers coming in while you know we were off, not working. So yeah, man, things all good. I'll get on this side. Let's, let's jump into the icebreaker. Cool. Yeah, let's do that. So this one came, I call these treadmill thoughts. I'm just like at the gym putzing around and mind starts to wander and things like this come up, which would be a great name for a podcast or something like that. If you just treadmill thoughts with James, but uh, yeah, I was thinking the other day, this whole nature versus nurture debate that people frequently have about parenting. And I was like, what about entrepreneurship, right? Like in general, the practice of entrepreneurship, starting and growing your own business, operating independently, however you want to describe it. You know, is that more of a nature thing where somebody is born with this innate drive to work for themselves and, you know, deliver value and make a living that way? Or is it more nurture where maybe if you have been an employee for most of your professional career, you can kind of force yourself to become an entrepreneur because you're motivated by whatever external factors that be? You know, I think the real answer is probably a blend of the two, but I'm interested in your perspective. Like, do you think there's any weight or preference given to one side or the other, nature versus nurture when it comes to entrepreneurship? Honestly, man, I th- I think it's an unanswerable question, and I do think that it's you know that it's both, and and kind of the you know nature influences nurture, and nurture influences nature. So I don't know. As a parent, right, I only have one kid. You obviously have multiple. And I have a lot of friends that have multiple, and people like I'm I'm thinking about some of our good friends here in Denver that their their daughter is just a few months older than our daughter. And she's just like a total like free spirit, like wild child, super like like risk taking that kind of thing. My daughter is not so my do- so like her friend leads right like jumps off the side of like the pool first, and then Tatum follows along. But then their second kid is like super super chill in a way that his sister has never been. Right, so like there is definitely something to like people are made certain ways, but then also like the way that you're raised very much affects you know kind of like the life that you lead or the life that like you want and you end up leading and therefore like what is better for you as a person. So like, you know, I'm the only entrepreneur in my uh, immediate family, my, like my side of the family, my father-in-law was an entrepreneur. My mother-in-law is an entrepreneur, but you know, my older brother's a doctor, younger brother's a data scientist working for a a company in our hometown. A lot of friends I grew up with, we were raised like in the same church and we are all homeschooled and you know, all this sort of stuff had this like played on the same sports teams and that kind of thing. Most of them got married at like 20 to 22 years old. And, you know, so now have like a kid that's driving. Right. And I have a three and a half year old, right. That's my only kid. It's like, we've lived very different lives. And that's because my parents raised my brothers and I'd be very independent and like, you know, go cool places and take some risks and that kind of thing. But I've always been more like on the, I want cool things side. I want to buy cool things. I want to have fast fun cars. I want to have a nice house. I want to be able to travel. I want to be able to do all these things. But like my brothers haven't been that way as much. My older brother somewhat, but he's a doctor. And so he makes a lot of money, you know, as a doctor and can kind of set his own hours in that way. So like kind of an entrepreneur in that way. So I don't know. I I think there's a lot of things that kind of go into kind of which is more weighted for you individually. I don't know. What, What do you think as you were on the treadmill? Yeah, I already have my response to this drafted up because I was thinking about it for so long. But I don't know. I mean, I think that I think that where I landed for now as a working theory is that the nature part of this is I believe that people are born with certain innate 
tendencies that may or may not lend themselves to being an effective entrepreneur. So autonomy and independence is one of them, you know, intellectual curiosity, they're prone to getting addicted to things, right? Like, oh, you just go down the rabbit hole on there goes James down the rabbit hole on saltwater aquariums or, or whatever golf or fantasy football, like you have this kind of addictive tendency to you to want to know everything about a topic, right? I think there are a handful, maybe a dozen things that you can be born with that put you in a better position to be a successful entrepreneur. That being said, I do think that I would give probably a slight advantage to nurture in terms of just because you have those things doesn't mean you're going to be an entrepreneur. And I think it's the people and the environment around you that actually put you on the path to going that direction. So some people are addictive and that obviously has negative outcomes. Some people are addictive and they become professional athletes or Olympians, right? Some people are addictive and they become surgeons or professors or something like that. It's just the the pathway that you decide to walk and channel that addiction or that addictive personality too. And so I think that, you know, one thing that came to mind to me is like, I, I haven't, I don't have any studies I can pull out of my back pocket, but I believe very strongly. And I would expect the math to back this up or the research to back this up, that if you are born into a household where entrepreneurship is already present, you have a mother or a father or some kind of caregiver or a sister that has a business and you see them every single day as you're growing up, run that business, struggle through that business, have successes with that business you feel that entrepreneurship is way more attainable and maybe even way more attractive as a professional pathway. And therefore, you're much more likely to become an entrepreneur yourself. I would expect the research to back that up. And I would expect fewer Mm. people who didn't have entrepreneurship as a presence in their life to eventually become entrepreneurs because it seems unachievable. It seems hard. You know, they're funneled in other places like college or more conventional career paths. So I don't know. I think you're born with the right stuff, so to speak. But if you don't have the people and the environment around you to direct all of that right stuff toward entrepreneurship, then you're probably going to go a different path. So I think you do need a blend of the two. I would actually love to see the research on that about what you said about if someone's parent is an entrepreneur, they're more likely to be an entrepreneur because my experience doesn't back that up. Meaning like my parent, neither of my parents is an entrepreneur, has been an entrepreneur. My mom ran like a daycare out of our house for a while, but like she's she, she likes working within the system, but my wife, both of her parents are entrepreneurs and neither her nor her sister are entrepreneurs. So I think what it comes down to really though, is like, and they, they did see the ups and the downs and like sometimes times were lean, right. And sometimes they were, you know, they were good. So I would actually love to see the the research on that. But I, I think really what it comes down to is like, you know, what I was saying about individuals is some of us are more risk adverse and some of us are more like willing to take some risks. Like I'm a I, and I've said this many times publicly, maybe even on this podcast, like I consider myself a risk averse entrepreneur that like I was unhappy at my job at Trulia before I got laid off. I've said that publicly before too. And I was like considering what to do. I was interviewing around like that sort of thing, but like I probably would not have gone out on my own. And so my life would be very different right now if I hadn't gotten laid off and didn't have the next thing to go to other than like my own business, right? I had my own business to go to. That's it. But you know, then I like did a bunch of consulting in order to pay my, pay my expenses while I got Credo off the ground. I only went full-time on Credo a few years later when I had a full-time person and we had plenty of money in the bank and like that at credo and that sort of stuff. Like I'm, I'm fairly risk averse, but I also have the like freedom, independent, et cetera, streak in me as well. Plus that like prone to get like addicted to things or ideas or whatever. I'm not afraid of hard work. Like, you know, that sort of stuff. I like new challenges and, you know, learning how to run a business and, and all that stuff. So like, I don't know. I think there, there's also probably something there about like risk aversion or like willingness to take some risk, but also measured risk. And you see the people that take the big like moonshots that have like a huge risk profile that like, man, sometimes they succeed, but like, that's actually the, the exception, not the rule, right? Most of them crash and burn and go back and get a job, right? I'm not going to get, going to have to go back and get a job. 
<laughs> just like straight up. So, you know, unless like something crazy happens, but like it's not going to happen. So yeah, I, I don't know. I think there's something to like, are you willing to take risks? Are you not? Do you like learning new things? Do you like trying new things? You know, are you kind of a, I think polyglot is the, is the word. Like you have multiple talents, right? You're kind of a, it's like a, a generalist that can like learn a bunch of things. Mm-hmm. And like, you can learn how to market, you can learn how to code, you can learn how to do the business stuff. You can, you're okay with numbers. You're okay. You can get okay with design, like that sort of stuff. Like if you're the kind of person that enjoys that and you're not a perfectionist, you're probably pretty well set up to be a successful entrepreneur. Otherwise you're probably better off being like a partner, right? Focus on specific things or a job that you stay within your lane. I just don't believe lanes exist. So (laughs) I I couldn't stay in a lane, right? Like telling me to like just focus on SEO and grow traffic. I'm like, but there are all these other things in the business that need to happen, right? So like I would go crazy being like a VP of marketing or something like that and just talking about marketing and not having product input and business input and like business model input and all that stuff. So anyways. Yeah. Yeah, I bet there's there's probably a list that you could put together that's several dozen aspects that make you, you know, prone to being more effective as an entrepreneur. Risk aversion is certainly one of those. Being a, a polymath or a, having diverse interests, you know, the other one might be like, you're okay with delayed gratification. So you're okay with working on something for a while with no meaningful payoff, knowing that like at the end, there might be a much bigger payoff, but it takes time to get there, right? And so you find your joy in yep. the process, not necessarily the outcome. There are a bunch of those. The interesting point that, that you brought up about risk aversion that I started thinking is like, man, I used to be very accepting of risk, especially when I was single. And in my teens and my 20s, before I had anybody relying on me, I took all kinds of risks. I mean, I walked into a recruiter's office and signed up for the army the same day. And, I, and like in one conversation, oh, wow. you know, and, you know, when it's just me on the line, I was willing to take on a lot of risk. But as I, you know, started dating somebody and eventually married somebody, and now that I have kids, I've noticed that my tolerance for risk is much lower because, you know, even if the pain is mostly felt by me, there is a trickle down effect to the other people in my life. And so I think that I think that is interesting because you see people like Elon Musk or even Steve Jobs or name other big tech CEO here. Or as you take those big moonshots, those big swings, like there's a lot of divorce. There's a lot of like broken families. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, you know, abandoned friendships and things like that, that that happen. And uh, there's a level of all in that I just never even want to get to. But people would call those folks successful entrepreneurs in some right too. So it's just kind of like there's a spectrum of these things, you could definitely go overboard. But yeah, I don't know, I think we kind of settled in the in the same place to some degree. And I'd love to see that research too about the parenting thing. Because, um, you know, you brought it up and like, my parents weren't entrepreneurs, either my mom works at a hospital, she still does. My dad worked in the restaurant industry and ran a lawn care business on the side. But I mean, it was pretty modest, you know, it was just like extra Mm -hmm. money to supplement his income. So it was entrepreneurship at the smaller scale. But yeah, I don't know. I don't think that made me any more or less likely to do what I'm doing today. But I think like broadly, I wouldn't be surprised if folks who have entrepreneurial parents either take over that business, which you can call that entrepreneurship or not. I'm not sure if you don't if you don't found it and you just kind of take over a CEO. I'm not sure how to categorize that. But I don't know, I would expect the uh, the prevalence of entrepreneurship among the children of entrepreneurs to be higher than those who didn't. But uh, maybe we could find a study on that and put it in the show notes. I actually I actually just found one from University of Chicago. It looks like it's out of Sweden saying that we find that parental entrepreneurship introdu- increases the probability of children's entrepreneurship by about 60%, six zero. Wow. Well, that feels significant. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. To a certain extent, you're born with this this genetic code and you can't rewrite that. It's not like software, you know, where you can just go in and rewrite it. But also I think that like years and years and decades of being exposed to 
people and activities and other kinds of environment can really help or hurt you in a lot of different ways. And I think that this is just one example, you know? Yeah. Um, my dad always had side gigs. Like he would do this big like data study for a community college in the area, even though he worked for the public university in the area, he'd do that every year, right? It was like this month, you know, every March he was like working on this, you know, study. And, you know, my mom was always like doing things to like buy other things that she wanted. And I'm still that way for better or worse. I'm like, even though I don't have to, I'm like, I want this hundred dollar pair of shoes. How do I make a hundred dollars to buy this pair of shoes? And now I'm finally getting to the, like, just buy the freaking shoes, you know, like not a big yeah. deal, you know, just buy the, buy the thing. But that's all, that's all nurture. Right. And that's all like seeing. Right. So anyways, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. I think we're on the same page. Cool, man. Well, let's, let's jump into the, uh, the editor ninja updates. What's going on as we, I mean, it's December 1st as we're recording here and, uh, we're chasing down the end of the year. I know we had some big goals at the beginning. So like, how are things looking? It, it looks like this is the point of the year where I start to think like, okay, I can get some pretty firm numbers on like where we're going to end up, you know, 30 days and counting, you kind of know whether you're ahead or behind target. So what are things looking like for editor? Ninja? Yeah. So for, I mean, for us year to date, like I'll be honest, man, this year has exceeded my expectations for editor ninja like overall i mean i'm looking here at like overall like volume so we've done over fifty three thousand in revenue like that's cash collected you know this year which is which is awesome we've had three months in a row now that are like right around eight thousand ish you know dollars had like you know one at like 84 and then one like right at 79 and then last month was close to nine so, you know, I, you know, I mean, we set out, you know, beginning of this year when we started this podcast, we said the goal is to build a six figure, like, you know, side hustle. I think I've done that. So like, I feel, I feel really good about that. And it's really grown in the last couple of months. Like it feels like everything, not everything, but like a lot of the, the initial systems I set up for, you know, assigning documents to editors and like all this sort of stuff is like, it's starting to break. Like, you know, six weeks ago, we're, I was assigning three to six documents a day to editors. Now it's like 15. So like we've like three X volume, like incoming volume in the last six weeks, basically, which is awesome. But like things are starting, things are starting to break. So I'm really thinking through like, okay, how do I make sure that like every editor, like we're just, it's all the capacity and like, just like, ops capacity management stuff. But, you know, so that, but that feels good. Cause it's like, it's where I wanted to be about this time. Cause like, okay, now I've got revenue coming in and, you know, I've kind of figured out some of the systems and, you know, we have editors reaching out to us. And so instead of us having to go and find them, you know, for the most part, so, you know, I'm testing out some new offerings and getting some like good traction on like the de uh, developmental editing and figuring out like what that looks like and who's going to deliver that. So, you know, I'm, I'm feeling really good, you know, about the business. I think December is going to be really good. I'm going to do some things to kind of, you know, uh, encourage people to just make a decision this year instead of, you know, instead of next year. And that's all going well. We've signed on a couple of good new customers recently, seeing people that like have more volume, a lot more of them doing like a kind of a test project. So like a couple documents through as a test or they're buying like a word bundle of like 25,000 words and then we're editing, you know, 15 to 20 pieces for them, you know, on that. And then they're signing up to a subscription or looking to sign up to a subscription sort of thing. So like, yeah, all of that's kind of moving in the right, in the right direction. And just a, an update two weeks ago, I said that I was going to do a, like do a challenge on like YouTube shorts and start putting some like visual content like that out there, getting it subtitled and that kind of thing. So I'm using subtitle with a Z. So basically like I record it here on my on my computer, turn my camera sideways in QuickTime. I edit it in iMovie, and then I, I don't do anything with the sound. But then I put it into subtitle, and they their AI pulls out all, all the words, right? The the subtitles, and then I go through and I edit that and kind of do you know kind of the Hormozy style like colors and emojis and like that sort of stuff. And then I'm posting three a week, 
on YouTube. So I've posted like five now, five or six now. Most of them have like 50 to 150 views. I had one last week that got like 1200 views though. So no idea why, but you know, so I'm, I'm just, I'm going to keep like the, basically the idea here is like just volume and volume is going to teach me over time. I'm going to develop a, you know, develop an audience. And, you know, I also really enjoy doing this stuff. I enjoy like the quick hitting, like quick advice, you know, sort of stuff. So yeah, that's, that's going well. It's just like a, it's a long, longer term play, but it's something that I feel like I need to, I need to be starting with now and then keep on, keep on going. So yeah, so that's, that's all going well. On the the downside, the the like the negative side or kind of like what's not working is I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I put live or I was putting live a new conversion path, trying to get people to like self sign up, and it's just not working. <laughs> I know last week was Thanksgiving, but I haven't had a single person sign up just like without talking to me. I haven't had anyone start a conversation with me on Zip Message. I've had some people start conversations with me on Bento, which is my like chat software. You know, instead of like Intercom or, or uh, Drift or something like that, I use Bento. You know, shout out to Jesse. But I've had a few people start conversations there, and then I move them to a call, and then they're converting into customers. But like the self sign up thing, at least in the way that I've had it, isn't isn't working. So I'm kind of considering how I rejigger that. Like I, at this point, like two weeks and, and and like thousands of people come through the site and no conversions and two demos being booked and they have to like jump through a bunch of hoops to book demos. I'm like, okay, this is enough like data for me to say like, this isn't right. This isn't working. And so I need to like shift it up. I think you're the conversion yeah. guy though. So James, <laughs> what would yeah. you do in my well, situation? <laughs> refresh, refresh my memory. So basically we went from originally it was like book a demo, which was a physical call with you kind of a traditional, yeah. you know, sales qualifying conversation. This yeah. model is it opens up the ability to just go ahead and sign up off the street, right? Or have a test project that then upsells them to one of your packages, assuming that they like the test project. My is that right or did I get yeah. the set, the new version wrong? Well, so the the test project thing is is that's I, I, where I think I'm going. I mean, you I you know just rolled out the ability for people to sign up to a, you know, quote-unquote free account and you you got one. I'm giving you a, a document for free, you know, for the good and kind of like beta testing it, like kicking the tires. You gave me a ton of feedback, which is awesome. So I'm working on integrating that, but the the current flow is basically someone clicks on, you know, a uh, you know, get started button. It takes them to a page that has a video and then it's either like get started now or learn more. Get started now takes them to a page that's like, how much content are you producing per month? It's like, I'm producing, you know, up to whatever, 20 pieces or 20,000 words. I think it's words. I probably should say like number of pieces of content per month, you know, zero to 20, 20 to 40. And if it's over 40, push them to a demo, to an editorial assessment call. But they can also, if they click learn more, they're taken to another video where I answer more of their questions and then encourage them to start a chat with me on zip message. And I've, that hasn't worked, even though I've had like I don't know, tens of people like view that video. I don't have any data on like how many people have clicked, click that button to then go to zip message. What's your take on that flow itself? Yeah. So I'm looking at it here in front of me. I mean, I think the most definitive answer you could get here is if you had something like Hotjar installed or, you know, goal tracking and Google analytics to see how many times each button is getting clicked. But if you had like a heat map or something like that to see one, I know you have this button in the hero section. I'm looking for the next one on the homepage. It looks like it's about midway down and there's a CTA box. So you have several of these, like I'd love to see scroll maps to see how deep people are getting on your homepage and heat mm -hmm. maps to see exactly where they're clicking and where their attention is going. If you had that, that would be the most definitive thing. My gut instinct here is I have a couple of reactions. One is like get started is kind of a nondescript call to action. So like, I don't know what that means. Like what does get started mean? Yeah. 
am I just going to get in more information? Are you going to prompt me to create an account? Are you going to try to get me to book a sales call? Mm-hmm. I think it'd be maybe a little bit more descriptive there. And then when you go to like the get started button on the subsequent page where you have the demo video, that takes you to kind of this purchase, uh, how much content do you produce, zero to 20? That says sign up today, right? But even that is kind of like sign up and pay money today, sign up for a free account today to test it out you know like what is mm-hmm. what's the description there and then if you're looking at the more information that kind of pulls you to the zip message so i think a little bit of clarity in exactly what i'm doing by clicking those buttons might be helpful you know my gut tells me that the absolute best call to action here that if you're purely trying to optimize for conversions would be like get a free sample document i bet if you put that on the site it would at least get people to use that take advantage of that offer like gangbusters, mm-hmm. right? I don't know if that's what you want, but I think it, on the on the spectrum of like what's going to result in the most conversions, it's going to be get a free document or take it for a free yeah. test drive or something like that. And I know that costs money and stuff, so maybe that's not the route. But I do think that like the highest burden would be pay fifty dollars to start today or whatever, or sign up for fifty dollars a month. Yeah. That would probably have the fewest conversions. So somewhere in the middle is yeah. where we want to land. The most definitive data we could have is like a heat map to see how many people are paying attention to that or how deep they're going. Like maybe they're missing the entire bottom half of the page. And then we just kind of shorten up the homepage and get to the, you know, get directly to the point or whatever. I don't know. That's, that's my initial reaction. It's like maybe a little more description would help. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been also thinking more about like the offer. And so like, you know, have hundreds of people coming to like the proofreading services page and it's not converting. So like, should I offer like, Hey, before like, if you're leaving, like get, get 15% off your first document or something like that. Right. With the like free account capability. Now they could do that. And then I, you know, I give them that and they basically like fill it all out, give their credit card information, create an account. And then we, you know, verify it and, you know, keep moving. And then they're into the system. Some of our competitors do like get your first 500 words edited for free. Right. So it's like a 1500 word document. We only charge you for a thousand sort of thing. Yeah. But I was also listening to a podcast this morning. It's an old podcast, five years old now by, uh, uh, I think the, the show is called like SAS, SAS hacks or something like that. But it was anyways, it was with the, actually it was the SAS podcast, which is still going. It was with Russ, Russ Perry from Design Pickle. And he was basically saying like, at least at that point, they were around 2 million ARR at that point. It's about 160K a month. And he said they tried all sorts of things. They were driving, you know, a lot of traffic from Facebook at that time. It's 2017. So like, you know, it was when the getting was good. But the thing that worked best for them is just, just sign up and try it. And I think they had like a money back guarantee, like sort of thing, but just sign up and try it like worked out best for them. Cause he was like, like this resonated with me today because he was talking about they were doing demos and sales calls. And he's like, basically if someone's going to sign up, I'm just like talking to them for 15, 20 minutes. And then like, they're asking a couple of questions and I send them an email and they sign up. They're already convinced. So like, just get them to sign up. Right. And maybe like put that, like what you're going to say on that call, put it into a video and just get them to sign up, which is the whole idea behind mine. And he's like, and then other people, he's like, we built out this whole CRM and we had salespeople and this sort of stuff. But like, if someone isn't like ravenous, right. And like they've worked with, at least in my case, like they've worked with editors before their editor just quit, like that sort of thing, or they're letting their editor go or whatever it is, like they're cutting costs. Those people are just going to convert. So like, why am I make, why would I make them all do like a demo call? So maybe it's not, maybe, maybe I shouldn't do the, like, you know, how many words do you have? Let's get you the right level. And like that sort of stuff. It's like, sign up, it costs this much. Maybe it's like a seven day, like free trial. And if like, you know, it's not for you in that time, like cancel. Right. And like, you're not gonna be charged anything sort of thing. I don't know, like something like that, but like, just get them all onto like the base level or it's the like create an account, 
get a document done. And then basically we have the upsells for subscriptions and such like on the back end. I don't know. I, I just think I need to have like one clear like call to action. Not like, do you want a dedicated editor? Are you enterprise? Do you want this? Do you want that? Do you need a single document? Like whatever. It's like, no, just sign up. <laughs> yeah. right and yeah. you can like get a document done and then you see how it works and then you can pay more to like subscribe to get more output like and if you need a lot you need a hundred thousand words a month then yeah let's have a call right like we should talk about that because it'd be 2500 bucks a month but like and i don't believe people are going to check out for that so i think just like streamlining it be like sign up for an account and then from there start getting work done yeah i think that's really smart i mean in the e-commerce world uh, pretty much a tried and true uh, rule of thumb is the fewer steps you have to complete the conversion, the higher your conversion rate goes. So if you have one click checkout, your conversion rate goes through the roof. If you have some kind of like right. quiz that pairs somebody with the right product, like that, those can be helpful. But every step that you add kind of reduces your conversion rate by 20% or something like that. So instead yeah. of, you know, three and a half, it goes down to 3.2. And then it goes down to three and so on and so forth. So like, the yeah. fewer steps you can have, the better. And right now, it looks like it's at least two, maybe three steps just to get into an account. I think that what you've gleaned from that podcast is smart in that, like, I don't know what this offer is. And honestly, if I were you, what I would do is I would have, like, four versions. Well, wherever the bulk of your traffic is coming into. If it's coming into a specific service page from, like, organic mm-hmm. search or something like that, maybe you test it there. But generally, I just assume the homepage gets the most traffic because that's where you're pointing ads or where referral links go to or wherever. So I would have like three versions of the homepage with a different CTA button on each one and test out, get your first article free, try it free for seven days, get 30 days or like take it like your average customer spend over a 30 day period and say, get your first month for 250 bucks. 100% 100% satisfaction guarantee, right? Like if you're not happy, well, I'll refund all your money. Test a handful of those uh, and just mm-hmm. segregate your traffic between variant A, B, C in equal amounts. Let it run for a few thousand sessions and see which one wins out. And then uh, apply that or consider applying that universally. I would expect like get your first document free would do really well. I don't know what that would cost you. To me, it's like if you get your first 500 words free and still have to pay for the other thousand, that just feels messy for you as the business owner mm-hmm. to try to like, you know, handle the billing on the back end. I'd almost rather just eat eat the cost, you know. It's it's up to you. You know your business better than I do. But um yeah, I would I would test like a couple of those variants in a free tool like Google Optimize and and just swap those mm-hmm. things out and run an A/B test between first document free, 7-day trial, whatever. But I agree the sentiment is like we just have one call to action and and we just want to get you yeah. to create an account, submit your first document, get your results and You'll either be happy with that or you won't. But I think the point that if somebody's going to sign up, like they pretty much already know, like all those questions that you're answering on the sales call, I bet you're probably like, oh, this is so frustrating because it's on the homepage or it's on the service page. Mm -hmm. It's just in one of these sections and they didn't bother to read or it wasn't clear or whatever. So like they don't need that much convincing. And I think that the ability to contact you, whether it's the live chat widget in the bottom corner or a contact us page, like I think people know to check the footer for an email address, check the footer for a contact us page, look for live chat. I think we've been conditioned mm-hmm. to find those kind of resources. So the folks yeah. who have questions, I think they'll still find you in some way. All you want to yeah. do is get them to create an account and submit their first document. And then once they have the account, they have the dashboard, they've seen the service and they've kind of had some understanding of that value. I've been through the process this week even, and I know that you have opportunities to upgrade the account, switch to a different service package, that kind of thing inside Mm -hmm. of that ecosystem. But you've got to get them to become a user instead of a prospect first. 
I think the easy way is like, let's just run one document for you. And if it makes financial sense, make it free or make it some ridiculously low cost. Like we'll basically do it for you at cost. All I want you to do is try the service and get a result. Yeah. 50, 50% off or something like that. Yeah. Right. But I would have a really compelling like automated email sequence to nurture them after that first document. And, and I would pay yes. attention to like, you know, have they already submitted a second request? Like just make sure that you're filtering out if they automatically upgrade after that first document, like you don't want to hammer them too hard. But if it's like first document right. and then silence, the next 30 days should be a little bit more educational content. You could rip it right from your service pages and just be like, mm-hmm. okay, you got your first document. Got any questions? I'm here to answer those. Here's how to book a sales call. If you don't yeah. have any questions, let's, let's just systematically go through the service offerings, which one's right for you, or mm-hmm. fill out this form with five questions. It'll tell me which service is right for you. And then I can share a little bit more detail about that. Like there's a lot of segmentation and triggered emails you could do after that. But all you want to do is yeah. get them in the door and get them, get them processing that first document so they can see the right. value. Yeah. I mean, yeah. First things first, before I build any of that out, and I think this is an important lesson I, I learned over the years at Credo is don't, don't build before it's ready. Right. So like for me, for so first thing is like, like I've traffic is, is pretty, is pretty solid. So then it's like, okay, now how do I get them to convert? So like getting enough like signups and then it's like, okay, now people are doing single documents, but they're not converting into, you know, subscribers. So we're not doing a second document. So how do I fix that? And kind of knocking it down as those problems are there. As opposed to like, before I launch this thing, I need to build out all these freaking automations and eight email drips and like all of that. Like, mm-hmm. no, just get people to sign up first. <laughs> if they're not signing up, that's a bigger problem, you know? And it takes 60 seconds to have one automated email that says, thanks for signing up. Hope you got value out of your first document. If you have any questions, book a demo here. That's, I mean, it takes 60 seconds to set that one up. And then at least you're not leaving all that opportunity on the table. But I agree, you don't want to get, you don't want to over-engineer it until you have some more data about what's working and what's not. Exactly, exactly. Cool, well, I appreciate it, man. What's going on your side with, uh, I mean, I guess both Castaway and Productize and Scale? Yeah, I don't know how to, I guess we'll just bundle these two things together now. I wish I had a, I'll have to come up with a name for the the enterprise, the conglomerate entity that is both of those things. But on the Castaway side of the house, pipeline's getting stronger. I feel like we are benefiting from this end of year annual planning type stuff where people are starting to set budgets and like, okay, well, you know, where are we going to spend this money next year? What are we going to do with this podcast? Are we going to cut it? Are we going to double down on it? You know, that kind of thing. So I would say leads are up, more conversations are happening. The problem is it's tough to get those folks to close. And I think there, that might also be like some uncertainty around like, yeah, we're having conversations around annual planning. We're having conversations around budget and those are being approved but I can't write you a check yet, right? Because what's happening is everybody's like, yeah, we're in. Sounds great. Pricing looks great. Deliverables look great. We'll get you all the brand assets. But when I send the invoice or whatever, like those, I'm having to chase those a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't know, I don't want to read too much into it, but my assumption is that hopefully that's just a victim of holidays and kind of uncertainty around annual planning and these kind of like in-progress conversations around how people are going to allocate dollars and resources. And those will ultimately close like by the end of the year. But it is something I'm keeping an eye on because it is like, you know, it's been easy to get to yes in terms of people committing to signing on. But when it comes time to like actually swiping the card or processing the transaction, I'm having to chase that down a little bit. I don't know if you are you seeing that on, on your side at all? I am seeing, yeah, some more some more interest in people, not so much like the annual planning yet. I think with like editors, it's more like 
like they're, they're much more concerned about the, you know, who's writing it and like all that sort of stuff. And then eventually, you know, once they start getting it back, then they're like, oh crap, <laughs> this is too much. Right. And then they like look to, you know, look to outsource it. So I'm not really seeing that as much, but it's cool to hear that's kind of working, you know, for yours. Cause like for yours, it's people that have established like shows and it's like its own, it's its own thing. Right. Some of it's their whole business and some of them, it's like a major acquisition channel or something like that. So they're planning, what do we do with it next year? And production is like such is like the whole work of it. Right. Like editing is a slice of like a content marketing program versus castaway is like basically you record it and i guess get it edited still like somewhere else and then like y'all handle like all the marketing of it so makes sense that that's that's kind of what people are looking for with you yeah yeah and we do have a really good prospect in the pipeline who we're going to be doing a paid test episode for and they're a content marketing agency that I know you're familiar with, but I, I've been watching them for a long time, love the leadership team over there. So they'd be a great client to land in general, but also because right now they're publishing weekly and they want to ramp that up to twice a week next year. So cool. that could be a 3000 to $5,000 account by itself per month. So that would be a big revenue boost if we could land that work. So we're just going to try to knock that out of the park. Um, that's going to pick up this week and hopefully I'll have some good news to share about that in a future awesome. update. So that's the castaway stuff. And then on the productizing scale side of the house, secured a sponsorship as in got the payment for the podcast. So we'll be bringing that oh. around for at least uh, 12 episodes. Hopefully we'll see uh, John Doherty on there to talk about Editor Ninja since we're interviewing founders of productized service businesses. So uh, we can get back on the mic at a different capacity, but we'll have at least 11 other episodes there. I basically priced that at break even, which I just wanted to not have to come out of pocket to produce uh, the podcast because it was really popular and got a lot of downloads back when it was active and already you know wrote a pretty big check to acquire the business in general. So it's nice to have that self-funded. And if the, the sponsorship goes well, I'm sure they'll renew and we can raise the price, that kind of thing. It was kind of mutually understood that this was a break-even rate for us cool. and we we're both doing each other solid. So, so that was a win. And then I did a Black Friday promotion, which is still active. We've got a few days left on that. But basically for those who aren't familiar, productizing scale, does a Black Friday promotion on its flagship course called Productize every year. Usually that's a 30 to 40% discount and that's pretty much all it is. This year I did kind of a tiered offering where we did the normal discount, but then I also added a coaching package and I added a conversion focused website review, which is basically like I'll screen share my thoughts on your website and how I think you could convert, could convert more browsers into buyers, that kind of thing. Both of those were 30% off an introductory price. So kind of did this tiered offering so that anybody can get involved and people who already bought the course can get involved again by buying coaching or one of the audits. So that was the philosophy. It's done over five grand already, which is a really good outcome for me because awesome. it, it did about six grand last year and nobody's really touched the website or the community or the audience since then. So to almost replicate that again, feels like feels like a significant win. I, I wouldn't have been surprised if nobody bought it all. Um, so mm. that's, that's kind of the big win on the productizing scale front. And like I said, that has a few more days that doesn't wrap up until Monday. So maybe we'll get a few more sales. I'll do a final kind of retrospective, uh, maybe the next time we talk. Yeah, that's that's it for updates in terms of like help or feedback. I'm thinking about taking some of those funds and maybe reinvesting them into ads for Castaway. And I'm curious if you're running any ads for Editor Ninja right now. I think I saw at one point, maybe you had like Google AdWords going or something like that, just to kind of show up at the top of the SERPs for some keywords. Mm -hmm. And if you are, uh, are you running those yourself? Are you working with somebody? Because I'm kind of like, yeah, I could get in there and learn those things, but it would take me a long time. I don't think I'd do a great job. Like I'd rather hire somebody. And then at the same time, I'm kind of expecting that to cost me like at least five grand a month. Like it'd be like 2,500 for their 
time and effort and then the budget on top of that, you know? So it's like, I just don't know if there are any ads managers operating at that that level of a budget that are also, you know, pretty good at what they do. So I'm curious, like if, have you run any ads? What's your experience? That kind of thing. Yeah, we, we run some minimal like Google ads ads for editor Ninja. It drives traffic, gotten a couple conversions out of it, which is great. So like we're, we're positive on it. I run them. I don't look at as often as I should. We're only spending like five, 600 bucks a month total. So like, I'm not expecting a crazy, you know, results. I might, I might crank that up a little bit and kind of like focus it down on a few of like the core offerings, right? Like just proofreading and just like copy editing, but I've run it myself. I will say you shouldn't have to like pay an agency 2,500 bucks a month to like run your ads for you, especially if you're only spending a thousand, 1500 bucks, something like that, they'll max charge you that same amount. But if you're only spending a thousand to 1500 bucks, honestly, I think you should just run them. Like it would be worth your time. Yeah. Like, like, is it going to cost you a thousand dollars of your time to get like some initial ads up and going? No. So like you should go ahead and do it. And once you're ready to scale it to, you know, with, with Credo, it was like, once we hit about 2000 a month in ad spend, that's when I started working with a, like an ads pro to manage our spend for us. But like below that, I just don't think it's worth it. Yeah, it might be worth, I, I should maybe just pay for like a clarity call with an ads manager or something, because mm-hmm. what I'm thinking is like, what amount is actually worth it? Like if you're not, I think a lot of ads managers might say, if you're not willing to spend at least 2,500 bucks, like you might spend 2,500 bucks or 5,000 just to figure out what works. Like to be totally unprofitable for that first 5K to figure out which campaign is going to work. But then you'll know the one that's actually going to drive customers and the next $5,000 has, you know, a two and a half times return on ad spend or something. So mm-hmm. if that's mm-hmm. the case, then now is not the right time for ads for me. But this would be more experimental. And it's like, I'd rather not waste, even if my budget is like 500 bucks a month, like you said, I'd rather not waste 500 because I'm an amateur just like pulling levers in there trying to make something work. I'd rather wait until I can afford to have an expert come in and kind of like accelerate that learning curve and, and minimize the, the pain, so to speak. Right. So I don't know if that's the case, but it, it might, it might be beneficial to talk to somebody just to figure that out. I don't know. I, I take the other approach. I'd rather waste 500 bucks than like wait until some time in the future when I feel like I can justify spending more like that to me, that feels like less risk than the like, than the second one. Plus like you get going quicker and, you know, action, action alleviates anxiety and, you know, action is the way that we, you know, just starting it like that, just getting that initial like inertia going is, is, is the biggest challenge usually. So yeah, that's been my approach, but that's fair. Yeah, maybe I will. It just, I don't, I don't know. I mean, like with a high ticket service, like Castaway, like our minimum, maybe, you know what, I'll save it for after a la carte pricing is live because then you would be able to just do a podcast episode, do a blog post for like 200 bucks and like, but right now when my minimum engagement is basically $1,500, it's like, okay, who's going to buy a $1,500 service off of one ad? And I know you got to show them the ad three or four times or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I, I I worry about getting literally nothing back for that money, which would, which would hurt, but you know, sometimes that happens. So maybe I'll give it some thought, but maybe after a la carte rolls out and there's at least an option for somebody to get engaged at a lower level, Mm -hmm. I'd feel, I'd have a little bit more confidence about kind of rolling my own ad campaign out there. And then I have to figure out which platform because, you know, Facebook's a bit of a mess. Twitter's a mess. LinkedIn, I hear, can get expensive. You know, like it's just every every platform has its own pros and cons. So I'd have to figure out, yeah, which one is the right one for me. You can't test them all. Nope, nope. I mean, honestly, man, like Google Ads still works super well. The thing I like about Google Ads is like, 
that you don't have to go and produce all these like design assets and like your, the creatives yeah. and worry about banner blindness and like all that stuff, you know? So I don't know. I, and, and like clicks are still, I mean, people, you know, will him and haul and be like, Oh, well, Google ads clicks. We used to be able to get them for seven cents a, a click. It's like, well, cool. Our grandparents used to be able to buy like a candy bar for a penny, you know, like, and now you can't get it for like less than a buck. So like times change. Right. But that doesn't mean that like candy bar is not worth a dollar now. Right. Or, or still, or, you know, it's not worth a dollar. You know, you, you shouldn't be like, I'm paying like a buck 30 a click for, uh, you know, to get someone to the editor ninja site, but I'm also selling subscriptions at 500 bucks. Right. And if I can convert like one of 20 people into a document, the average document is 50 bucks. So like, will I pay $20 to make $50? Yes. So, you know, it's just a, it's kind of a, a no brainer there. So, you know, yeah, I think it's, I think it's worth testing for sure. And just like pick one, test it, right. The one that, you know, is what I always tell people. Yeah. I will say I've tested at least half a dozen newsletter sponsorships for another product I service through the day job at the yep. good. And that has been like crickets and those were fairly targeted newsletters. Really? I mean, we offer mm. customer feedback services and we're talking to marketers and we specialize in doing customer feedback for e-commerce businesses and we've sponsored e-commerce newsletters and mm. you know a handful of sales maybe from some decent ad spend. So that doesn't wow. mean newsletter sponsorships won't work for you, but I'm just sharing that yeah. because I see all these people talking about like, hey, newsletter sponsorships drove six figures of revenue for us this year. Right. And so I figured I'd test it out and maybe it's all on me. Maybe yeah. my copy sucks, maybe my offer sucks. But I will say that like the reason I'm thinking about ads is because we've done a number of newsletter sponsorships and, and if it was like, not a great outcome that would have been one thing but it's like when it's a near zero for that kind of ad spend that really hurts so yeah i don't know maybe maybe someone else's yeah. experience would be different but i was listening to uh asia matos who runs mm-hmm. demand maven on the microconf podcast yesterday when i was at the gym and she was talking about basically testing new marketing channels and obviously like microconf is largely like develop developer minded bootstrappers right and she she repeated the same thing a few times which is basically the market will always be slower than your marketing so like if you think Mar- you think it's going to take you like, you know, a month to start getting results from this thing, it's probably going to be three months or six months, right? So like you don't give yeah. it forever, but like also recognize that like your goals and your expectations for like how long it's going to take to see results, it's always going to be longer because people have to like see the, you know, see the offering and and all of these various, you know, things and like see it a couple times and then they see, click your ad and then they see you in or- a blog post in organic and then they click through and then they decide to start a free trial. Like that sort of thing. It always takes longer than you think it will. So that, yeah. that just stuck with me yesterday. And obviously like I'm a marketer, like I consider Asia a peer, but just that simplicity of it will always take longer than you think it will. The, the market is always slower than your marketing. The saying is basically <laughs> like you will tire of your marketing before your audience does. It's the same thing, right? So, you know, just stay the course basically. Right. Yeah. And that's why they're like, if you post on Twitter, don't be afraid to post the exact same thing like seven different times because the way the algorithm works, like only a fraction, a very small fraction of your audience actually see each one. And uh, there's a there's a psychological term for this, but it's basically like you think that everybody is watching your every move when in reality, nobody is paying that much attention to you. And you're way more sensitive to like, like, oh, everybody knows that I've posted this seven times. Like pretty much nobody knows that you've posted this seven times. They didn't even see the first one, you know? So yeah, point well taken. You start to understand why people raise venture capital too. So they can just burn through a bunch of cash and wait for it to work. Whereas like if you're trying to run a, a profitable bootstrap business, you're like, well, I only make $3,000 this month. That's what I get to take home. If I put all 3,000 into ads and get nothing back for it, at some point, I'd like to buy groceries. You know, you get into those kinds of conversations. So, yeah. Right. You know. 
Totally, totally. Yeah, and it's worth, you know, I, I just, you know, just the, the the last thing I'll say about like Editor Ninja today is, you know, I just put low five figures into the Editor Ninja bank account for my own, like, you know, my own coffers. You know, I had it set aside and I just put it in there. So like that gives us more breathing room and I can test out more things. I can pay more people to create content like that sort of stuff just to make it go faster, right? So like there is there is part of that as well that, you know, it's, yeah, when you're bootstrapping and budgets are tight, you really have to make it all like, matter, but also like you also need to have long enough of a time horizon to see success and not give up quickly. So, cause I see, yeah. I see too many people do that. Yeah. It's like that meme where the, the guy's digging through the mine with the pickaxe and he stops just short of the diamond. Right. And it's right. like, the, the, you know, and he turns around and he goes home and you're like, ah, if you just would have stuck with it for another month, you would have unlocked that. So sometimes, sometimes it feels like that. I know a guy that he just, he's tested out a bunch of product ideas this year and he had one that seemed like it was working, had people paying him, and he had like three people tell him no and tell him that like they you know, they, they, that wasn't a problem for them. And he just quit after working on this thing for like six months and building the whole wow. product and data pipelines and all this stuff. And I'm like, dude, what? <laughs> <laughs> like that, that doesn't make sense to me. So anyways, like don't, don't quit too soon. I think is the, is the message. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Awesome, man. Well, always great to catch up and hear what's going on on your side of the world. And uh, yeah, just congrats on, on a solid year. I know it's not done yet. We'll keep pushing on, but just the, the progress that you shared today was, was really impressive. So great to, great to follow along and uh, we'll look forward to catching up with you again soon. As always, if anybody wants the show notes uh, or to listen to the back catalog or stay informed of new episodes, we're at workingsessions.fm. See you later, everybody.